Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Well, good morning. How is everyone? Great. Um, I was actually due to speak, I think it was the 23rd of March 2020 here at the Central Service, uh, which was the first Sunday of lockdown. So that was the last time I was supposed to be with you, but it is great to be here. Um, as Dave said, uh, I lead our services in East London. Now the Marlene service, we were two months ago, the Bethnal Green service. We've now moved venue onto a place uh, on Coburn Street uh, in between Marlend and Bow stations, a brilliant location. We get use of it uh, the whole week. Uh, and we're decorating it, we're doing DIY on it, most of it ourselves. Probably the highlight for me of the DIY project was uh, when Dave Stroud came along with his paintbrush. And uh, uh, Philip asked, did he just like stand there, get the photo and then go? He, he didn't. He did a, a quite a good job. He's, he's a good painter. Yeah, quite a good job. I had to uh, go for it after, but we won't say anything about that. Um, but today, uh, I get the joy to continue our sermon series looking at uh, I Am, the seven sayings of Jesus throughout the book of John. Now, this question, who is Jesus, is the fundamental, fundamental question in regard to the Christian faith. It's a question that humanity has asked for 2,000 years, and it's likely that every single person in this room has grappled with that question. Perhaps right now you are figuring out that yourself, like, who is Jesus? What does he mean to me? Who was he? And we're really glad you're here. We hope we can help you in any way uh, that we can. Uh, and as Dave said, the Alpha Course is a really great way uh, to do that. Now, there are many theories, uh, both historical and religious, that vary when it comes to this question. Was he the son of God? Was he just a great moral teacher? Was he deluded? Did he even exist? But what we're going to do throughout this series, what we've uh, had the opportunity to do, is explore how Jesus answered that question. Who did Jesus think that he was? And so far throughout this series, we've seen Jesus as the bread of life. He is the one that sustains us. We've looked at him as the light of the world, how he brings light to our darkness. And today we are going to look at perhaps a slightly less glamorous saying, Jesus as the door or the gate, depending on your translation. But it has, it's a saying that has profound implications to answer that question, who did Jesus think he was, but also for how we live our lives today. So we are going to read quite a bit of scripture today. I hope, hope you don't mind. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 10. Uh, and we are just going to start by reading the first six, verse, uh, six words, and the uh, words will be on the screen. So John chapter 10, verse 1. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees. Now, this is the only of the I am sayings that Jesus directly addresses the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were a group uh, of leaders that didn't hold uh, any political power, but they were hugely influential when it come to come, came to the a spiritual, religious life of Israel and the Jewish people. So what provoked Jesus in singling out this group for this saying? Well, in order to find that out, we have to go backwards, of course, into chapter 9 and to, set, uh, and to a story that really bridges Jesus' second saying, I am the light of the world, with the one we're looking at today. So Jesus, he demonstrates that he is the light of the world uh, in John chapter 9 by healing a man who was born blind, literally bringing light to the darkness. And the healing itself was prompted by a question uh, that the disciples asked Jesus. It was this, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, within that culture at the time, the assumption was that any sense of suffering was punishment for sin. It was your fault. But for this man who was blind from birth, how could 
his blindness be as a result of his sin. He didn't have opportunity to do anything. Maybe there's another way. Perhaps it was the sin of his parents that caused his blindness. But Jesus says neither. Rather, this moment is an opportunity both to reveal who Jesus is, the light of the world and the Son of God, and also an opportunity to, to demonstrate what that means. Healing, restoration, compassion, the beginning of God's kingdom here on earth. The narrative then moves to how the community, and specifically the Pharisees, respond to this healing. So they set up an investigation to try to figure out uh, who Jesus is and how he healed this man. This moment, this healing, has completely challenged their worldview and beliefs, as it would for anyone. But it also has the potential to challenge their authority and identity as well. So how do the Pharisees respond? How does the investigation go not great, to be honest. They don't even get to a conclusion as to who Jesus is. And the Pharisees, they are so biased in their view, so stubborn, that they keep pushing the healed man to change his story or tell them the real truth. Because what seems to have happened cannot possibly be true because it didn't fit within their framework of possibility. And it all comes to a head in the final interaction between the blind man or the healed man and the Pharisees in chapter 9 from verse 24. I'm going to read it. A second time, they summoned the man who had been born blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man, being Jesus, is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? I love the sarcasm, by the way, in the, in the blind man. It's a great, great, great reaction. Then they held insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. What Jesus saw as an opportunity for compassion, for healing and for restoration, the Pharisees saw an opportunity for condemnation. But they also reveal some of their hidden motivations. The blind man challenges their authority and wisdom, and the Pharisees respond out of insecurity and pride. This wasn't about discovering the truth of the matter at hand. Who was Jesus and how did he heal this man? Instead, it's about how the Pharisees ensure that the story being told fits within their own worldview and ensures that their authority and position goes unchallenged. These men were in a position to look after the people of Israel. They were influential and they had authority. But they used that in such a way that protected their perspective and their position. And the irony of this is throughout the Old Testament, the thing that the Pharisees were so knowledgeable about Scripture, it warns us or warns leaders about disregarding those they lead, particularly the vulnerable. In Ezekiel 34, it says, This is what the Sovereign Lord says, Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. The Pharisees forgot what it looks like, what it meant, what the role of a shepherd or leader within the kingdom of God was all about. Despite their knowledge of the law, despite their knowledge of scripture, they completely disregarded what it said. 
Instead of compassion, they show contempt. You are steeped in sin at birth. Instead of humility in the face of this incredible event, they show pride. How dare you lecture us? And instead of courage, they show cowardice, and they threw him out. And Jesus, not content with healing this uh, man physically, he searches for him, and he restores his worth, his dignity, and his value, and answers the question, who is Jesus? From verse 35, we read this. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we, are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. End of chapter 9, start of chapter 10. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees. So let's continue reading through this chapter into this analogy uh, of Jesus as the gate. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Let's just pause there. When I first read this, I too didn't really understand what Jesus was trying to tell us. Uh, the analogy he uses involves shepherds, sheep, gates, gatekeepers, and it can all be a little bit confusing. Um, so let me just try and explain what Jesus is getting at in this analogy. Uh, at that time, a gatekeeper uh, would protect all of the sheep and make sure that they were safe. So rather than each uh, shepherd having their own pen, you'd have one big pen, lots of sheep uh, owned by different shepherds and a gatekeeper to make sure they were all safe. So shepherds would keep their sheep in a shared communal pen. The, the way I kind of think of this is a bit like a nursery. Uh, a parent would bring their child, give them to the nursery, entrust the, the child to the staff, and when their parents return, hopefully they know who their child is, and the child uh, knows his parents, and so on and so on. In the same way, the shepherd would arrive at the gate, be let in by the gatekeeper, call his sheep, and, they, and only his sheep would follow him. I was confused, so were the Pharisees, so Jesus changes the metaphor from verse 7. Therefore Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So in this passage, Jesus gives not one analogy, but two. In the first, Jesus plays the role of the shepherd, known by the gatekeeper, and the sheep listen to his voice and follow him. And you have the voice of the stranger who the sheep do not recognize, do not know, and do not follow. And the second, Jesus is the gate that protects the sheep and leads to life to the full, whereas the thief steals, kills, and destroys. So Jesus, not only, Jesus is not only comparing himself with the Pharisees, portraying himself as a trustworthy leader that, to use the analogy, is like a sheep leading us to green pastures. He's going one step further. By adding this analogy of the gate, he's saying that the only way to life to the full is through him. And so the question I want us to think about today is, what is this life to the full that Jesus offers us? 
And what does it mean to go through Jesus as the gate? Before we do that, I want to look at the alternate story, the alternate version, the way of the thief or the stranger, the way of the Pharisee. The way the Pharisees believed we could enter life to the full was this, obey the law and be accepted by God. That way of thinking was so embedded in who they were that they made rules to make breaking the law even harder. So they set rules and rules and rules before breaking the law became, would become even a possibility. And it's a little bit like when you set your alarm multiple times before you actually need to get up. Do you ever do that? That's, that's kind of what's going on here. The Pharisees set their alarm way before they actually need to get up in order that they actually wake up or don't break the law. And this has shaped their whole worldview. Keep the law, be accepted by God. Break it, be rejected. It was an impossible standard for anyone to live up to. And people were trapped, forced to rely on what they did or didn't do and their own willpower. Now, our context is very different, but I, I think that idea that God will only love me or accept me when I'm a certain way or I, where I've done enough, I think is still pervasive, both within the church, but also in the perception of those who wouldn't call themselves followers of Jesus. That if we just do enough good or be nice or go to church or pray enough or all of the above, then I'll be accepted by God. Or if I'm facing struggles or difficulties or trials in life, there's something about me that means it must be my fault. I think we can all feel like that at times. Theologically, we might understand that we are saved by grace, but deep within our consciousness, we can live and feel like we've got to perform or behave in order to earn acceptance and love from Jesus. Now, there was a, a cliche that I grew up with uh, about the Christian faith. You may be familiar with it. It was belong, believe, behave. Did anyone, has anyone heard that? Just me? Okay, great. A few people. Cool. Um, now, this actually quite shaped me quite a bit uh, growing up. Firstly, you uh, belonged within the church community. Then you came to believe in the Christian faith. And then you behave. You do all the right stuff. And there's definitely some truth in that cliche. But the problem with that is that it left me feeling that my relationship to God was all about my behavior. And I think the Pharisees would probably agree with that statement as well. And that makes me feel uncomfortable. It can leave the impression that how we relate to God is based on behaving the right way. I was walking uh, in Stepney Green, uh, where I live a while back, uh, and outside a secondary school there, there was this big banner that said this, belong, believe, become. And I was like, oh, that feels way better. That feels w so much more like the Christian faith that I have come to know. When we follow Jesus, yes, there are things we are called to do and not to do. But the purpose of that is to become the people that Jesus has made us to be, is calling us to be. The call of Jesus is to be more like him, to become holy like him, but not legalistic. To reflect his character and his kingdom to the world. And the way in which we do that, the way in which he asks us to do that is through relationship, not the way of the Pharisee. The sheep do not earn the shepherd's attention. They just have it. The blind man wasn't blind because it was his fault. And he wasn't healed because of his own success. He was healed because Jesus expressed, expressed his love and compassion for him. And it's the same with us. This is how Tim Keller often puts it on his Twitter account. He, he posts this regularly and just changes it uh, frequently, I think, it, because it's so important. He says this, how religion works. I obey or behave. Then God will love and accept me. The gospel, I'm loved and accepted. Therefore, I wish to obey. And what we read in this story in John is that 
we see, we see this coming together of two very different worldviews revealed by how Jesus completely turns this interaction on its head. The Pharisees believed that it was the blindness of the healed man that condemned him. Jesus makes the claim that the self-proclaimed sight of the Pharisees, their wisdom, knowledge, and observance of the law, the things that according to them gave them the right to judge the blind man, was instead the very thing that blinded them to the truth of what had happened and who Jesus is. But it's not just the theology of the Pharisees that Jesus is challenging. He's making a, a direct critique and a statement about poor leadership and abuse of power. As Ezekiel wrote, they were leaders who only take care of themselves and do not take care of the flock. And tragically, increasingly over the last few years, respected leaders either abuse the power that was given to them or allow that power to justify their abuse. And when it happens within the church, it is heartbreaking and catastrophic and can lead people to question not just their role in church or the church, but Jesus himself. The blind man experienced this kind of leadership firsthand. He was thrown out of the synagogue because of his honest testimony as what, of what had happened to him. Now, every part of his life would have been affected by that decision. Jewish culture revolved around the synagogue, not just your religious and spiritual life, but your family life, your community, your social life, your economic life. It touched every part. And if Jesus hadn't searched him out like a shepherd finding his sheep, who knows what would have happened to him. And if you have experienced anything like that, I am so, so sorry. And my appeal to you is to not allow that experience to lead you to question Jesus. Don't let it rob you of him. Take encouragement from this passage and see how Jesus deals with abuse of power. See what he says about it. Take encouragement from the story of the healed man. And if you've been hurt by those in authority, my prayer is that you find healing and restoration and that we can collectively become a community of integrity, of honesty and humility and that we would live out and model the kind of leadership that Jesus calls us to, modeling what he would go on to say in John to Peter in chapter 21. Take care of my sheep. So Jesus is saying, don't follow the way of the Pharisee. They do not care, take care of the flock, and their way does not lead to life. But there's also a second alternate way or voice that we can listen to that is unique to our context today when it comes to finding life to the full, or maybe a modern translation would be hashtag live your best life. That was a joke. You can laugh. <laughs> we, are increasing, thank you. we are increasingly living in, what, in what's becoming known as an age of authenticity, where the search for life to the full is a process that is done individually and internally, where the truth is either felt or experienced rather than something that exists outside of ourselves that can be known or discovered and shared within community. The philosopher Charles Taylor writes that there arises in, the, in Western societies a generalized culture of authenticity or expressive individualism in which people are encouraged to find their own way, discover their own fulfillment, do their own thing. The age of authenticity says to find life to the full, look inside. Instead of the shepherd leading the sheep, the sheep lead the sheep. At its core, it means that responsibility for finding life to the full is on you and it's on me. Now, there's, there's a lot, a lot that could be said on this. Books are, there's libraries of books that have been written on this, this trend, this, this new culture. But one of the outworkings of this, this age of authenticity, what it does is it creates a huge amount of pressure. If we don't succeed, if life doesn't feel like life to the full, if we encounter pain or suffering or sickness, the only response, well, we only have a few responses we can have. Maybe resentment or blame 
or self-pity. There is no other explanation for our pain or suffering or purpose within it. Or when we make something, even a good thing, the gate in which we walk into life to the full, whether that's a relationship or a career or an identity, it moves from becoming something that we love or do or desire or enjoy to becoming the defining aspect of who we are. And it can be crippling when it's challenged or taken away when we realize our own inability to succeed. The author Benjamin Nugent wrote in the New York Times about the experience or his experience of this in relation to becoming a good writer. He said, when good writing was my only goal, I made the quality of my work the measure of my worth. For this reason, I wasn't able to read my own writing well. I couldn't tell whether something I had just written was good or bad because I needed it to be good in order to feel sane. I lost the ability to cheerfully interrogate how much I liked what I had written to see what was actually on the page rather than what I wanted to see or what I feared I would see. Now, on the irony of this, this culture that we are living in, this age of authenticity, is that it's actually the same way as the Pharisee. We may not be following or asked to follow a set of rules, but the principle is the same. It's on you. And this age of authenticity, it, it clashes pretty clearly with vi Jesus' vision or, or statement of being the gate, that if we want to experience life to the full, according to Jesus, we go through him. And so what does Jesus mean by this? What did he mean when he said he's come to give us life to the full? Well, firstly, and probably obviously, Jesus' motivation is unlike that of the Pharisees. It's not built upon uh, exercising power or authority or selfishness or pride. His motivation is his love for his sheep, his love for you. And by leading us through the gate, by him becoming the gate for us, he removes the burden of self-fulfillment off of our, sh our own shoulders. The, own need for, uh, the need for us to find life to the full inside or on our own, and instead gives us direction, guides us into true life, and ultimately saves us. We receive this life to the full because Jesus gave his life for us. The gate is the cross. The gate is the resurrection. It's the way in which Jesus restores the blind man in us, and forgives the Pharisee in us. But does this mean life would be easy? We might read these scriptures and read of life to the full, and we might think, really? Does Jesus, the life that Jesus invite us into, guarantee us a life of wealth or health or happiness, free from suffering and pain? No. Whilst we do know and can know his joy, his peace, his love, his presence with us, at the same time, scripture talks about the reality of pain suffering too. And part of being a follower of Jesus is at times to participate in the suffering of Jesus where we pick up our cross, scripture says, and follow him. But in order to do that, in order that we bring about his kingdom, his life to the full here and now, and in the midst of a world full of pain and suffering and death, he invites us to join with him in bringing life to this world. N.T. Wright wrote that God's new world of justice and joy, of hope for the whole earth, was launched when Jesus came out of the tomb on Easter morning. And I know that he calls his followers to live in him and by the power of his spirit, and so to be new creation people here and now, bringing signs and symbols of the kingdom to birth on earth as it is in heaven. The resurrection of Jesus and the gift of the spirit means that we are called to bring real and effective signs of God's renewed creation to birth, even in the midst of the present age.
Not only does Jesus invite us into life to the full, he also invites us to play a part in bringing that life here on earth. That's why our vision is for the cultural, social, and spiritual renewal. That's what we're seeking to do, bringing some of this life that Jesus offers here into the city today. But having said all that, we have had an 18 months of pain. It's been tough, to say the least. And even if our pain, our suffering, our difficulty feels meaningless, like it's not really playing any part in bringing God's kingdom here on earth, we hold on to this truth that he is with us. Psalm 23, I think, puts this perfectly, that God leads us into still waters and green pastures, even though, as if at the same time, we are walking through the darkest valley. But he is with us. Tish Harrison Warren, in a brilliant book, Prayer in the Night, writes, Mysteriously, God does not take away our vulnerability. He enters into it. God did not keep bad things from happening to God himself. To look to Jesus is to know that our creator has felt pain, has known trouble, and is well acquainted with sorrow. But our hope in suffering is not merely to gaze on the biography of an ancient man frozen in the pages of the Bible. The story of the gospel is not a mere mantra or a relic of history. It is alive and ongoing. The work of Jesus continues even now in our everyday lives. So in hardship, we do not look to Jesus solely as one who has been there before, once upon a time in a distant past. We find that he is here with us in the present tense. He participates in our suffering, even as mysteriously in our suffering, we participate in the fullness of Christ's life. Jesus invites us, he invites you to put your trust and faith in that story, to put our trust and faith in him, knowing that one day, as it says in Revelation 21, that he will make all things new and he will dry every tear. And we would one day truly and fully know his life to the full. The life that Jesus offers us is the story of the blind man. It's the story of Jesus knowing your value, seeing your worth, and seeing your pain and suffering. And he doesn't just do something about it. He participates in it. And as we choose to walk through the gate, we participate with his story, bringing life where there is death, light where there is darkness, and joy where there is anxiety and fear. If the band want to come back up, that'd be great. In a moment, we're just going to pray and we'll worship again. And you um, you may resonate with this idea of trying to earn God's favor of that being the way in which you relate to God. We're just going to leave some time, some space for you to bring that to God. Or you might feel like you are being torn by this age of authenticity where so many things are trying to vie for our attention, saying, put your trust in this, put your money in this, this is where life is. Or you may have just still be struggling with these last 18 months. I can totally relate to that. And I'm just going to pray in my main prayer, whatever uh, is resonating with you, whatever God might be doing, whatever you're thinking right now, my main prayer for us is that we would know Jesus present with us today, that we would know his presence with us, whether we are going through challenges or moments of celebration, that we would know him with us, whether he's leading us right now into green pastures or if it feels like we're going through the valley, that we would be made aware of his presence with us. So if you'd like to stand, I'm just going to uh, leave just a moment of quiet for you just to in your own mind and heart, just pray your own prayers to Jesus. Reflect on what stood out to you or what's been provoked in you. And I'll pray for us and then we'll worship.
Jesus, thank you for your presence with us. Thank you that the motivation for everything you did was your love for us. Thank you that we can experience and know your presence with us, your joy, your peace, your love, your forgiveness. Lord, I just pray that we would both hold on to this hope that one day you will dry every tear and we would experience life in all its fullness. But also, in whatever we are going through right now, God, I pray that we would know you present with us. The reality of pain or suffering or tiredness or whatever it might be, Jesus, you are present with us. Not just have you experienced it yourself, you are here. Lord, I just pray for restoration. I pray for life. I pray for the life that only you offer. That we would know some of what you spoke of. Some of this life to the full. Lord, I pray as we look into these next few weeks, these next few months, Lord, I pray that we would not hold anxiety or fear as we look forward, Lord. Lord, I pray that something just changes in our in our consciousness and our spirit where we know that whatever this next season, these next weeks or months will look like, we will just know you present with us in a way we haven't experienced before. Come Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus.